0: lovely maple grove minnesota and sixfootmama.com this is still growing with jennifer ebling still growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, I want to start out by welcoming new listeners to our Facebook community. It's the Still Growing podcast group on Facebook, and new members this week include Christy Lynn Olson, Deborah Williams, Maribeth Decker, that's my mama, Carol Dunn, Janet Paulson, Diane turner Forrestall, Deborah Pouts, Drew Porter, Lynn Clark, Chris Carlson, and Amy Putkonen. Welcome, you guys. Well, the Still Growing Facebook group is really for the listeners and guests of the show. So if you like the show and you want to join, it's a great place to ask questions. You can share your garden stories and interact with the guests that are featured on Still Growing. And all you have to do is go to Facebook and look up Still Growing Podcast Group. And it's gonna look like it's a closed group, but all you have to do is request to join and then I'll admit you once I see that you're not a scammer or a robot, and then you can enjoy interacting with the guests and the listeners of the show. It is the only place where you can win some of the great garden giveaways from my guests and sponsors. And this week we have a winner for the Jen McGinnis Frau Zenny episode that was a few weeks ago. And Jen was giving away matted five by seven photos from her garden collection and two original photo cards all from her private gallery at McGinnis Photo. And our winner is Drew Porter. She's a new member from Rochester Hills, Michigan. So congratulations, Drew. And Rochester Hills is where my great aunt Frances lives. So shout out to Rochester Hills. We went through the beautiful downtown main street with the the gorgeous bright city lights. They they light up their main street like nothing you've ever seen for Christmas. And the kids and I walked... uh, Main Street with my second cousins and it was just absolutely beautiful. We took a lot of pictures. We did a family picture there. So if you're in that area, it's a great place for holiday pictures. Well, the Facebook group is also where I curate and post interesting garden content that I think you guys would enjoy throughout the week. And some of the posts that I shared this week included something from one of my former guests, Deborah Madison, the fabulous cook and author of the great book, Vegetable Literacy. She had shared that her book, Vegetarian vegetarian suppers is now on sale for $1.99, the Kindle and the ebook version of this. So if you go to Amazon, make sure that you're looking for the Kindle version or the ebook version, and then you can download it for $1.99. I mean, my goodness, it's practically free. So it's definitely worth the download. It's fantastic. A lot of people really love this cookbook. Again, it's called vegetarian suppers. So just look it up on Amazon. It's $1.99 for the ebook version. It would certainly make a great... Uh, Christmas present as well. It's really, really nice. So that's a great deal. The other uh, post that I shared that I just got such a kick out of this week was actually shared in another group, and it was from Becky Wyckoff Green. And she had taken a picture of a glorious hornet nest that's on her property. It's in a tree. And of course, it's a bald-faced hornet nest, And I posted this picture because actually I've been looking for a hornet nest, not one that's active anymore. But I keep taking nature walks, hoping that I'll stumble on one that's been abandoned so that I can bring it into the house. I saw uh, the most beautiful entryway picture where someone had kind of leaned one. It was still attached to a branch and they'd leaned one in their entryway and it was just really really cool so I want to try to do that so I've been taking little walks through the woods because this is the time of year they kind of blow down or they'll be abandoned in the tree so obviously you don't want to go after one that's still occupied by the hornets but after that first frost they are kind of done with that nest so I'm keeping my eyes peeled I hope I run across one but her picture was just so glorious and I asked her if I could please share it with the group and she said absolutely. She was delighted that more people could see it. So definitely check that out. That is really something else. And if you have pictures of hornet nests, I I love looking at them. They're fascinating. You know, those hornets go out and collect wood matter and kind of pulp Uh, like cardboard or different types of paper to make their nest. And all the color variation is reflecting all the different sourcing that they have done to find material to put their nest together. So it's pretty tremendous. Um, Today, I'm actually recording with the window open. So if you can hear some papers fluttering around, every now and then I get a great fall breeze that comes through my office here. And it's just so nice to have my windows open finally. Our air conditioner has been broken over the past month. And So as we wait to get a new one, it's been wonderful that we can finally open windows again and and get things cooler here. You know, one of the things that I figured out just recently is that one of the biggest chrysanthemum operations in the United States is right here in Minnesota. So I'm going to be reaching out to these guys. But I had a friend who had posted about decorative or fancy kind of high-end show mums, chrysanthemums. So if you're out at the grocery store and you're buying chrysanthemums and you're a chrysanthemum lover, apparently there is a whole nother level of chrysanthemums that are available that are also cold hardy. And one of them was developed by the University of Minnesota and it's called Centerpiece. So I'm going to be tracking these guys down over the next couple of weeks and see if I can't get them on the show and talk to us a little bit more about mums and all the variations. Now apparently... The premium place to buy a lot of the fancy show mums is an online source called King Mums, so I'm going to be tracking them down as well. One of the plants in my garden right now that is just starting to pop is my monkshood. And generally, I get a little frustrated with my monk's hood because it usually doesn't start to bloom until Halloween. Well, by then, my entire garden is really cleared off, and there's nothing there except for this tall, scraggly-looking monk's hood that's blooming, and it always annoys me because it's so late. But this year, it's spot on. I still have beautiful color in my garden. My shrub roses are on a second bloom. I've got glorious black-eyed Susans and all kinds of coneflower yellow. yellow coneflower, and pink coneflower that are still blooming. So it's right there beside its brothers and sisters in the garden, and it's doing fantastic. So I just shared a post about my monkshood as well. You know, monkshood is extremely poisonous. In fact, it's one of the most poisonous plants in the garden, so you have to be really careful when you're around it and you're handling it. Even the roots are poisonous. I was reading in an article about a month ago that monkshood was actually used to poison the tips of arrows for spears and arrows for bull hunting. So respect the monkshood and enjoy it if it's finally flowering at an earlier stage this year in your garden. Well, this week marks week five, chapter five of the Still Growing Book Club, and we're focusing on all the President's Gardens by Marta McDowell, and we'll be capping off the book with the actual election, and then that week I'll be releasing my interview with Marta, and she is kind enough to be giving away a copy to a lucky listener. So if you're looking to follow along, we're on Chapter 5 this week, and I will be posting a supplemental blog post about Chapter 5 that'll have some videos and questions that you can ask in case you're using it with your garden clothes club. Now, today's guest for the show is Lori Neverman. She's a homesteader. She's a blogger. She lives in an environmentally friendly home in Northeast Wisconsin, and she has an amazing setup there. You're going to be blown away when you hear about all of the great things that she has built into her property to support her lifestyle as a homesteader. She's got greenhouses. She has solar, just an array of really great infrastructure set in place to support what they're trying to do and to help them become more self-reliant. In 2009, Lori started the Common Sense Homesteading blog, never imagining that it would become a major voice in the world of homesteading that it is today. In this interview, she shares all kinds of great tips and information, everything from Oh, let's see. She's got a hilarious story about her cat named Big Fluffy. We talk about preserving. We talk about wildcrafting. And she's got this wagon wheel garden. And I can't get that out of my mind because I'd love to do something similar. Anyway, if you go to her website, you can sign up to get a free download of her Common Sense Homesteading 101 Guide. It's simple steps to becoming more self-reliant. It's really, really awesome. And you can download it for free at her website at Common Sense Homesteading. Well, welcome, Lori. Nice to talk to you. Nice talking to you. Well, why don't we start by having you share a little bit about your personal life, and then we'll jump into some of the things that you and I both have in common, which is gardening and home remedies, writing, blogging, photography, and so on.
1: I have two boys, and they're in their late teens, and my husband and I live with our boys out on 35 acres in the country. We're in Northeast Wisconsin. We have an environmentally friendly home that we built, oh gosh, it's 11 years ago now. We started building in 2004 and then moved in in 2005. It has a number of features like passive and active solar, a masonry stove, a green finishes, things like that. We also have, on the 35 acres, we went 25 out to a nearby organic valley organic farmer. And then on the 10, we're doing a permaculture transformation. We have a lot of annual gardens, but we're also looking at building up a a food web of different perennial crops. So that's been our big project the last couple of years, and that's been a lot of fun. Other things about the house, we do have an attached greenhouse, but we built a detached one. That was last summer's big project. We have a root cellar, a canning pantry. Every day is a little bit different, but every day tends to be really busy, which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to.
0: Yes. Why would you build an unattached greenhouse if you already had an attached one?
1: More room. More room. That was the big thing. Plus, unfortunately, with the way we ended up having to set up the passive solar overhang, we had part of the decking go over the top of our greenhouse. It's right on the east end of our home attached to the walkout basement. And as the sun comes around during the course of the day, the deck really tends to shade the greenhouse more than it's healthier for the plants. Okay. So it worked okay. But it's not ideal. All like right. it does better for low light plants, like herbs, greens, that kind of thing. The high light plants, like tomatoes, peppers, things like that, tend to get really leggy in the attached greenhouse.
2: Ah,
0: and do you ever have moisture issues with it being connected to the house? Do you have any worries around that?
1: No, it's not really a problem because we have just an exterior grade door between the two. Oh, so.
0: that's great. And then, what's the flooring in your greenhouse? Out of curiosity,
1: that's just a plain gravel floor. We just had it excavated and then they backfilled with rounded gravel so it's not too hard on the toes. We did the same thing in the root cellar too. That helps maintain the natural humidity levels and let it breathe. And of course, if you spill, it, it just soaks right in.
0: Yeah, I love that part of it. That's fantastic.
1: It's really nice uh, for things like at the end of the season, I can dig up some of the stuff that's going in the garden, like the parsley, different herbs, and bring them inside and have them for several months longer. So, and, you know, just step right outside and boom, you're there.
0: So Yeah. And do you use it to overwinter things? Like, are you zone four as well? Because we're zone four here in the Twin Cities.
1: Yeah, we are borderline zone five, but we do get some wicked winds. So we can almost overwinter things, but when we get those deep cold stretches, like some of these last winters where you get those 50 below temps and things, there's been nothing wants to live in that, even in an attached greenhouse. So. Really? Yeah, it's just a little too harsh. It is. And last one was kind of mild. And in the detached greenhouse, I did have things planted directly in the ground because that one has a dirt floor. Mm. And some things survive the winter. They just froze back, but then they came back from the roots. So I'm looking forward to experimenting with that some more this winter. Yeah, I think I have a better idea of how far along things need to be to basically... Hold them in stasis once we hit the deep winter. Yes. Versus keeping them actively growing because our light levels up here in the north just get too low to even keep the things that are tolerant of the cold thriving. You know, basically things just they'll stay, they'll stay alive, but they're not going to grow anymore because the days are too short. Okay. But you can still keep your fresh produce available. It just needs to just be at the point where it can hang out.
0: Yes. And then do you grow a lot in containers just for that very reason that you can then, you know, pull them into the greenhouse or no?
1: Not too much. Unfortunately, we're in one of the windiest areas in Wisconsin. And when I've tried container culture, it just really is hard keeping it upright. I have to secure the containers because I want to try blowing over and keeping it from drying out. Okay. The wind just sucks the moisture out of everything.
0: I know I was explaining that to my kids the other day. I said, everybody thinks it's the sun, you know, why their plants dry out. They always forget about the wind factor.
1: And, and I'm sure over in Minnesota, you get plenty of that, too. You guys have a great wind resource with- on oh. the edge of three
0: planes, yes, tremendous resource. I have a friend that has a really beautiful backyard and she wants to do hanging plants all around her patio area on the perimeter mm-hmm. and she's she really gets dangerously oh, she gets so frustrated every year, and she's like, "I don't get it. we're watering them, and I'm like, you've got to remember they're hanging in the air, they're suspended in the air, they're drying out like from the bottom from the sides all over the place, and then she's basically in a wind tunnel where their home, oh. where their home is situated. I'm like. Oh, my gosh, you're going to have to do drip irrigation and and do it multiple times a day just to keep these things going. So, yeah, that would
1: be a rough rough
0: setup. Yeah, it is. Now, your online home, which is common sense homesteading, is a wealth of information, and I know you and I were talking before the interview, you've had a lot of time to get this baby up and running since 2009. I think most people, uh, like myself, like the idea of becoming more self-reliant and are taking steps to become more self-reliant, but you and your family actually live that life. And And I love the tagline for your blog. It says, "Using sound judgment to be more self-reliant." Is it really as simple as making choices that lead a person to be more self-sufficient?
1: I think everything in life is that simple and that complicated all at the same time. Because no matter where you are, I mean, we have, uh, some would say, ideal setup because we've got the acreage out in the country. But even somebody who's in town can make an effort to cook a meal at home versus eating a meal out, you know, to develop those basic skills or change your own oil and your vehicle as opposed to hiring somebody else to do it. All those little baby steps add up to saving you money and making you more independent and just self-reliant, I guess. (laughs) That's it.
0: Yeah, and a great sense of accomplishment when you've done something like that as well.
1: Oh, yeah, it's great to look out at the garden, when it's all weed and the trellis is open and, and and then the harvest starts coming in and you think, I did that. Or yes. with the kids, we did that.
0: Yes. And isn't it great? Have your kids done something um, on their own or, or demonstrated that skill of self-sufficiency that's kind of surprised you?
1: Well, I know. I hope you you don't have too many militant vegans on your, your list or your listeners' list. But um, we do have rodent issues. We have... Squirrels and fat little rabbits who have been continually raiding the garden. So my youngest took it into his own hands, and he did send out the squirrel and rabbit population a little bit this year. The boys just, matter of fact, he got... You know, it was clean, quick, and they, they cleaned up the animals together. They skinned them and, and cooked them, and, and, yeah, we had supper and a little less of the garden raiders. So, yeah, I was really somewhat surprised <laughs> that they were on YouTube. and like, we can do this. We can do this. I love YouTube, of course. You can find instructions for just about anything.
0: Oh, honestly, yes. Right
1: there, so. Yes. So, yeah, that, that was one of their most... uh large projects that they did recently because it it did take them some effort. (laughs) Other YouTube video that we tried recently, shaving the cat, but that was a family affair. Two two hours, four people, cat hair everywhere.
0: Oh my gosh. Now, why'd you shave the cat, Lori?
1: Well, we have this cat that we refer to as Big Fluffy and he's, so Harry, he's a Maine Coon, oh. and he's a, he's been inside outside with all of our kitties because they keep patrol the yards and garden. And as summer came on, he was getting out into the burrs. He's coming home every night just covered in burrs. <laughs> and so a friend of mine who lives in Michigan and has a Maine Coon, she's like, I shave him for the summer. I get him shaved for the summer
2: because
1: so oh. it's nicer for the kitty, and then they don't pick up so many burrs, and it's just easier for them to keep their coat clear and. Yeah, and he had some matting in his fur. You know, it's long hair. It does that thing. And so we were able to get all the mats out. And he's so funny because he looks like a little lion now. He's got his big mane, and he's got a slender back.
0: Oh, I love <laughs> so, it!
1: But it, it was a very interesting experience for everybody involved. <laughs> and there was and it looked like it snowed over the. There's cat hair oh. everywhere, and but everybody survives and Kitty is happy, and, and, and Big and Fluffy made
0: it. Big fluffy. I love it. Well, my piano teacher growing up had a Maine coon cat. That was my first uh, exposure to one. I thought they were so beautiful, and it's on my to do. Yeah, I'll have a Maine Coon cat at some point in my life yet. That's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. I do wish, though, that you would have videotaped that because I would watch that video.
1: Four of oh, you. no, no. It was, it, we were too busy. Like, it, we're handing the cat from one person <laughs> to the next because he's he's panicking and he likes to lick when he gets stressed Aww. out. So everybody's arms are getting licked. Oh, my gosh cat hair everywhere and one of us was working with the scissors, sniffing the hair a little bit shorter, and yeah. the other one was going by back and cleaning up afterwards with the shaver because we got a pet razor, but his hair was so thick that you couldn't just use the razor because you'd make one swipe and the razors don't immediately clog up. And it was more like a comedy of errors. Oh but-
2: my gosh.
1: I think next year will be easier because now we've developed the system and, and yeah. now he knows that we're not going to do anything horrible to him and it's all going right. to be okay.
0: Well, I was just going to say, you're trained and certified now. So next year you can have the camera set up on a tripod yeah. and
1: <laughs> maybe it'll be safer.
2: <laughs> Come so here, Big a, Fluffy. We do have a
1: video on YouTube about cleaning cat ears with coconut oil. And surprisingly, it's one of the most popular ones I put up.
2: But oh, not really? That I have
1: a ton of them out there. But our kitties are generally very good about having their ears cleaned. but. Shaving and pills? No, no. But, huh. uh, people were impressed by it, that the cat just sits there and let us do its ears. But. And a little
0: coconut oil inside the ear keeps them clean, huh?
1: Well, you end up, you make sure you use the liquid coconut oil or melt some solid coconut oil. And so it's naturally antibacterial and anti-inflammatory. So it will coat and smother the ear, mites, and we just squirt it in with a small shrimp. Tringe. I can't say that. But Syringe. You know what yep. Yeah. <laughs> and and then you rub it around in there and wipe it clean, but don't go too deep in, you know, with a Q tip like you're cleaning your own ear.
2: Sure. And that
1: will soften and loosen the mite and debris and any crustiness and then it will also act as a mild antibiotic for any inflammation or infection in the ear. And we did get that cleared with our vet and we took Kitty in after the first time we had done it because would do for checkup and she's like, Yeah, yeah, you did a good job. And yes, that's just fine.
0: So wow, that's awesome. You know, you and I were talking too, you just had another post that went viral and I was going to ask you about it, but it was basically how to get the little green worms out of broccoli. And you do this salt water bath that your mom did, right?
1: Yeah. Mom always used hot water. Some people just use a ton of salt and cold water, but I find I can use less salt with warm water. It's like a little green worm Jacuzzi, saltwater jacuzzi hot tub, they get relaxed, they re- loosen up. That's the big thing with this hot water versus the cold water. When we get cold, we tend to naturally contract. You know, your muscles, are just, ooh. Yes. The worms do the same thing. So when you use warm water, they relax, they float right out, and the salt finishes the deed. And that way you don't end up with any unwanted passengers in your broccoli as you take it to the table, which they're edible, but they're gross. Yeah, they're gross. I know, I, it's, it's a Western civilization thing, so I'm told, but eh, I have eaten them. They do taste like broccoli. I fried some up with my eggs and broccoli one morning when I didn't bother to rinse, and I saw them, in there like, ah, Paul's, my friend Paul, who eats bugs, he does shows on eating bugs <coughs> to local schools and things. He says, oh, yeah, you can eat those. So I tried it, and they taste like broccoli, but it still just grows.
0: Yeah, you don't want to if you, if you can avoid it.
1: Yeah, so.
0: Wow, but this yeah, was a really... company over. Yeah, well, exactly. And this was a really popular post for you.
1: Well, I was really surprised. I shared it on Facebook. And there's so many people who are saying, too, well, I didn't realize there were worms in broccoli. Oh, my gosh, I'm never going to eat broccoli again. And and some people say, well, I'm just going to eat broccoli from the supermarket because that doesn't have any worms. And, and I'm thinking, well, that's fine. That's certainly your choice. And the thing is, I personally would really rather have Broccoli that I know is safe enough that the worms will eat it, rather than broccoli that's been sprayed with so many pesticides that nothing wants to eat it. But Uh, that's just me.
0: Touché. Very good point, Lori. And it goes back to something uh, you and I had already talked about as well, which is you have to grow it to know it. You have to experience growing broccoli to know that there are worms in broccoli.
1: Yeah, I think that's a perpetual problem. I'm sure you run into this with your readers and listeners, too, that A lot of people are so detached from their food supply now. The classic example is the people who say, well, anybody who's going to eat meat should get it from the grocery store where no animals are harmed, which (laughs) obviously is utterly ridiculous to anyone who knows anything about meat. But I had uh, another incident with my sister-in-law, sweet lady but has never worked outside, and she thought she loves potatoes. So she was going to grow some potatoes with her kids. So I gave her some seed potatoes, and I instructed her how to plant them, and she and the kids put them in in the spring. Well, fall comes around, and she calls me, and she said, well, the plants are dying back, but they never (laughs) grow any potatoes on them. Aren't they supposed to grow some potatoes? I said, did you (laughs) dig the potatoes up? She said, no. I said, potatoes grow underground. You've got to dig them up. She said, Oh, (laughs) to anybody who's ever grown a potato and and harvested them, that's a super obvious thing. They're a root vegetable, but to somebody who's never done it, not so obvious.
0: Yep, you're right. And often people refer to self-sufficiency by saying things like the lost art of this or the ancient knowledge of that. Are there self-sufficiency skills from the past that you're curious about that you would like to know more about?
1: I do. One of the areas that I am just starting to experiment, I never have enough hours of the day, uh, is the simple basic herbalism, like the herb wife, the ale wife type of thing. Yeah, you know, the basic working with the weeds that grow wherever you're at and using them for food and medicine. I think that's a skill that everybody should have. And I have a whole series on the website, the Crafting Weekly Weeder Series. That I want to go through this year and update because it's just there's food underfoot and we don't even recognize it or know anything about it. It's not just keeping some wildflowers for the bees. It's like, well, no, they're, they're good for us too for food and medicine. Like one of the stories that one of my early mentors for using the weeds shared with me, well, it, it kind of evolved together. We had gone foraging. At a farm, she noticed that their field had a lot of St. John's wort growing in it. Okay. And Mullen. And we went in there and we were picking, and she was talking to the farmer who owned the field, and he had had ear problems that led to partial deafness earlier in his life. And Mullen, one of the things that it is used for is treating ear aches and ear infections. And she, she was telling me, she said... Maybe, maybe if he had known what was right outside of his door, maybe whoever was his caretaker when he was a little boy and the incidents happened, maybe they could have helped him with that and maybe he'd still have all of his hearing.
0: Oh, isn't you know, that fascinating?
1: It, like we walk by this medicine every day and we just don't even know it. Yeah. So that's one thing. And another thing I dabble in occasionally, usually when I have too much of something that's going to spoil is home winemaking. and. I want to try experimenting with mead making because I don't know if you've read this or not, but they're finding that the wild fermented meads have an antibiotic action above and beyond the alcohol. Oh, really? Like they may be effective against some of these antibiotic resistant bacteria. So that's another area that I really want to learn more about and, you know, get into the whole wild mead thing. but. The wild yeast can be tricky because you don't always have that guaranteed ferment like you do if you use a commercial package yeast. I mean, if you dump your package yeast in, you know it's going to take off. It's going to eat the sugar. The wild yeast can be a little bit fussier. You don't know. You might end up brewing a good wine. You might end up brewing vinegar. So, Hmm, That's incredible. But, yeah, the promise of the natural antibiotics is a very interesting thing, and, you know, who knows? could save some lives.
0: Well, and it seems to be a natural next step that this would be an area that people would, would grow to be curious about because I just interviewed Eric Sandrud of Mighty Axe Hops. And so he started growing hops and uh, providing hops to microbrews. And this is like another step in the whole grow your own beverage kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, the craft brew industry has really grown by leaps and bounds in recent years. It's fascinating to me. I'm not a big drinker. But I still appreciate both the art and the science.
0: Now, in terms of self-sufficiency, are there endeavors that you have tried that you no longer choose to do because they just aren't worth the time to you?
1: I was raised on a dairy farm, so we did our own milk. And we had big flocks of poultry, so we did our own eggs. And we had sometimes cows would go to our own slaughter, and so we'd have our own meat. and. Right now, we don't have any animals, although I am planning to get a flock of chickens as soon as we can get some different types of coops filled here. But right now, I'm lucky enough to have friends who raise chickens and friends who raise chickens for eggs and another friend who does pastured beef. So you can't do everything. And I think it's important to realize that you're not Superwoman or Superman,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so Right now, those are some of the things that we don't do. We're not raising animals at the moment. And it's not that I didn't enjoy the time with the animals, and I do hope to have them again, but not a top priority at this point.
0: And Big Fluffy and the crew there will have to do for now, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we've
1: we've been talking about getting a dog because the cats aren't keeping down the deer population, but they're not too keen on that idea for some reason. So.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love it! What are some things that people can do, especially gardeners, to become more self-reliant?
2: Well, food, I think,
1: is a great area to start in. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, just learning how to cook. I know I see postings on social media, and uh, nothing bad about this, my friends. Exactly, if anybody's listening to this, but it seems that certain people—they're eating out for breakfast, they're eating out for lunch, they're eating out for dinner like, don't you ever cook? I thought you cooked. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that's a big thing to start with your food. and, And you can eat healthier and save money if you know how to cook. And then if you do have a garden, certainly being able to preserve some of that, because I think we've all been faced with, at least if you have a garden of any size, you have something ripening, everything ripens at once, and you're just overwhelmed. So if you know how to preserve those foods, and there are a variety of means available now that were not available to my, my grandmother, for instance. She spent long hours canning everything and she had a root cellar and that was about it. You know, now we can freeze, we can dehydrate, we can even freeze dry at home. Like I invested in a home freeze drying unit earlier this season and it's been a little bit of a a factor to get through There was some stuff with this oil change stuff and, and I'm not going to get into, but to get the oil change done and the oil level just right, we had some messy times here, but the freeze-dried, the home freeze-dried product is amazing. Just hmm. the quality is so much better than the commercial freeze-dried. The berries, I mean, they look like berry slices that you just loaded in there and they taste like candy. and. When you dehydrate, they tend to get everything tends to get like leathery and not you know, like it's not bad, but it's just a different texture. The freeze dried stuff is light and airy and just melts in your mouth and you can do different things with it. So we've been doing a lot of fruit lately because we picked a lot of strawberries, but we want to have our own home done freeze dried meal so we can eat in an emergency or just have stuff in a hurry, things that we like to eat on a regular basis. But we do have the, the dehydrating, the home canning. We can do the pressure canning versus the boil it for five hours canning method that my grandmother used to use with meat, which the pressure canning is a lot safer and a lot quicker. So, learn how to cook, grow your own food, preserve your own food. I think those are some very basic steps that most people can do. Not You might not be able to do a lot of growing your own food if you have limited space, but you can sometimes source food locally from farmer's markets or... Through CSAs, community supported agriculture agreements, and and yeah, just just make mindful
0: choices. And this is a good segue into your post that you just wrote recently in the past month about preserving strawberries. And what I was so struck by was how comprehensive you were in sharing the different ways to preserve them. You know, this applies to a lot of different things, but you had 12 different options for people who had strawberries and what are you going to do with them? Can you walk us through, you know, maybe some of your favorite things that people can keep in mind as they're looking to preserve future fruit Harvest for the rest of the summer?
1: Initially, I introduced in the post, you know, keeping the fresh berries fresh in your refrigerator because even if you're not preserving it, if you take good care of your freshly harvested food items, they can stay oftentimes for up to a week in the fridge and still hold their quality good. So I think that's an important place for people to start. You don't generally want to seal things up really tight in plastic containers because that's when you get moldy mush. Yep. Your food needs to breathe. And don't wash things until you're ready to eat them or preserve them because as soon as you start washing, a lot of times produce will absorb that extra moisture. And again, you're going to leave moldy mush. And if you notice one piece of produce in a bag or container starting to go, make sure to pitch it because as soon as one goes, it spreads those mold spores to the rest of the stuff. So I think those tips I had on for the strawberries and they apply to pretty much everything. You know, yeah. be in mind in your food storage.
0: Yes. And one other thing you mentioned, and I thought this was a great point, was leave the stem on the strawberry. Don't process them all right away and then put them in the fridge. Do you think that applies to other produce as well?
1: Yeah. Things like asparagus or, you know, you don't want to generally do trim the bottoms off because that'll often be the tough part of the asparagus. Yep. But you don't want to trim it until you're ready to use that. You don't want to peel your carrots typically until you're ready to use them. You know, the, the peelings are on foods for a reason. They trap the moisture in, they keep your food fresh. So unless, you're doing food prep for the week, you know, like veggie sticks and things, okay, you can prep because you're prepping those for school lunches or snacks or whatever, okay, but then you're probably going to want to add some water back in, you know, keep your chopped veggies in like a celery or carrots in some cold water to help keep them fresh and crisp because as soon as you take off those skins, things start to get limp, the fridge keeps air circulating and that air is very drying to your produce. So, yeah, it takes steps. You, you don't want to over-process things until you're ready to complete the processing.
0: I listened to your interview on the Vegetable Gardener podcast, which I thought was fantastic. So if folks are interested in hearing more of you, I'd encourage them to go over there. But you have a setup that made me so envious because you have the greenhouse, but you also have the root cellar. And then you have this area for all of your canned goods. And it's like a trifecta of awesome homesteading resources. Your family was so purposeful about incorporating these things when you were building your house. It wasn't an afterthought for you guys. Do people ever ask you about how to incorporate things like a root cellar into a modern home, something that maybe they retrofit or figure out a way to, you know, add on to their property?
1: Well, we do get some questions. We actually open our home the first week in October, Actually, the first Saturday in October, we have an open house every year, and that's part of the National Solar Tour of Homes.
2: Okay. And so we
1: open it up to the public, and we generally have a pretty good turnout and gift tours, uh, everything. And so we get a lot of people who come through that who have more house-specific questions. I haven't focused as much on it on the website. Because, of course, typically if you're doing a renovation, that's not a quick and easy in and out type of thing. It's not an afternoon project, which, you know, as we both know, tends to get more traffic because people like quick and easy.
2: Yes, correct.
1: But some things can be retrofitted more easily. Others can't. Like if you're building new, it's so much easier to plan ahead. If you're retrofitting an existing basement, a little more work has to be done. But generally, I think people are capable of squeezing in more than they might think they can initially. But you do have to get creative sometimes. One of the posts I have on the website is there's a root tiller basic post, but then there's also what I refer to as above-ground root tillers because people have asked, Hmm. well, I don't have a root tiller and I don't have a basement. My house is built on slab. Is there any way that I can do an above-ground alternative? And the post just breaks down different types of storage that you can do in most homes, like under bed storage or closets, or if you've got a side room, or you can sneak things in places that tend to be underutilized in an existing home. So if you're creative, you can figure out a solution most of the time.
0: Now, what's something that you wish gardeners would incorporate into their garden practice? A a habit or a resource that when you're talking to new gardeners, they're just not aware of or they don't know to do?
1: Probably a couple things. I encourage people to get to know their weeds as opposed to just pulling everything out because there are actually a lot of weeds, as I mentioned earlier, that can be used for food and medicine and some of them make very good ground cover. They can protect your soil and shade the ground so that it doesn't overheat in the summer, so it doesn't lose all the moisture in it so fast. Yep. And once you get your primary plants well established, you don't have an issue keeping some weeds for your ground cover and a lot of the insects like the bees, they use those weeds for cover and for food and I think working with your weeds and learning how to use them as a resource as opposed to just panicking, oh my gosh, something's weedy. It's like, wow, well, yeah, good, bad and different. It's just one part of things I think that is neglected by a lot of people. Oh, and another funky thing with the weeds is that some of them will improve the soil Weeds tend to show up when the conditions are right. A lot of them are transition plants that they will show up where nothing else will grow and they will bioaccumulate. They will die when they compost into the earth and it enriches the earth and then other plants can come and flourish. Now, not that they won't grow in your thick, nice garden soil, but some of them will grow in really crappy places and make them better. And the other thing is having people focus on enriching their soil versus just fertilizing the plant. Because if you have good, healthy, thriving soil, you can grow just about anything in it and you'll have a minimum of bug problems and your plants will just be more resilient to whatever the season throws at them. If you don't have healthy soil, your plants are more likely to have bugs. Your plants are more likely to topple over in bad weather. You're just going to have more problems straight across. They're going to be less resistant to drought or to heavy rains. Take care of the soil and then the plant's health will follow naturally. I think those are two big things that are underappreciated and, and not very emphasized in a lot of the modern gardening literature.
2: I
0: agree. And I really appreciate your comments about weeds because there's so much black and white thinking when it comes to weeds. And I think you've offered some really good counterpoints to that mentality. I especially appreciated what you said about ground cover. Are you an easily enchanted gardener or do you resist allowing your emotions to guide you in the garden? Well,
1: one of the best parts of gardening, isn't it? I think. And, And it's, It's healing for me to be out in the garden. Well, most of the time, sometimes, you know, when I'm getting frustrated because the deer have lopped off the top of the beans again, that's not so relaxing. But (laughs) overall, I garden not just to put food on our table. My garden is like painting with a living palette for me. Okay. Like adding in these flowers here, this color vegetable, and mixing and matching the colors, the garden, the herbs, the vegetables, the fruits, the flowers... And everything, it's my way of expressing myself. It's not just the food garden. I, I know I had a little bit of a discussion with my brother because the boys and I were working in the garden and some particular task was taking longer. We, we weeded a bed of root vegetables. We put up trellises on different sets of peas. And he's like, well, the time it took you to do that, you could have had a real job and you could have made enough money to buy a whole truckload of peas. <laughs> <I'm> like <laughs> You're missing the point. You know, it's not just the end result. It's the experience.
2: Yeah.
0: I like hearing you say that, too, because when I hear about homesteading and self-sufficiency, my brain can start to immediately think of utilitarian and, you know, very purposeful and very deliberate, planful uh, types of activities. But there's joy and pleasure in this as well for you.
1: There should be, I hope, because if it's all just work, all the time, then yeah, that that's it's draining. It's exhausting. So good to at least appreciate what you do and get some enjoyment from it. Yeah,
0: that's right. You know, here's something that you touched on briefly, but it's this term wildcrafting. And it's a term I hadn't heard before. I've heard of, you know, foraging and and that to me, you know, implies that you're incorporating things like weeds or or things that people think of traditionally as weeds into, you know, the table or cooking. What is wildcrafting? Do you know anything about where that term came from and then how do you incorporate it into your daily life on your homestead?
1: So, wild crafting, I was first introduced to it by my mentor, the one who was talking about the gentleman with his ears in the mullet, and it's just basically, you know, root, wild, and crafting, crafting wild harvested plants and using them for food and medicine. Sometimes we use it a little more, sometimes we use it a little less, and I guess it's the whole daily life on the homestead. Of course, this time of year, there's a lot of everyday type things, like if you're in the garden and you get bit by a mosquito and you just grab some plantain, that's plantago major in our area, okay. although with this the plantain, it's large oval leaves, very pronounced veining in them like a celery stalk and you smash those and you put them on bug bites and stings and they are just amazing. They take the itch and burn away very, very quickly. Best thing I've ever found for treating bites and stings. So that's something that we eat a lot of, of course, working outside. And I also make it into an infused oil. I take that oil and make that into a salve so that we have it available for the off-season. Other times, I'll harvest the wild-growing plants, you know, the weeds, and use them in food dishes right along with my cane stuff. Like one of my boys' dishes that they will ask for specifically using weeds is... I make a version of Spanica the spinach pie. Okay. And except for I'll use lamb's quarter, otherwise known as goosefoot, hmm. and I'll substitute that for the spinach. And you can substitute, there are a number of different wild greens like pigweed, the lamb's quarters, and they chop and saute, and they, they make very good substitutes for your typical greens like spinach. That by this time of the year, they're already bolting, and you can't get a harvest anymore, at least around here. But I'll we'll be putting in a fall planting later. You know, we eat them right along with the tame stuff. Purslane, Lane, for instance, makes a pretty decent salad green. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a succulent. It grows low to the ground. It has little oval leaves, and they're kind of little fat butters.
2: Yes. And, yeah, it
1: looks like and, it is a
0: succulent, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. And it's related to moss roses, interestingly enough.
2: Oh, I can see uh, that.
1: The So I grab a few purslane leaves and throw those into my salads, too, and they add a little bit different taste and crunch and they're very high in omega-3 fatty acids. There are a number of plants that I harvest and dry to keep around for medicinal use like the mullein and I will make if we have enough flowers which I think we should have this year because I purposely transplanted several mullein plants into one of my garden beds and by and like cultivating my weeds so I would have easier to harvest flowers. The mullein flowers are kind of unusual, well, I guess not that unusual, but they don't tend to flower all at once. They have these big, tall stalks, and just a few flowers will open each day. So to get enough to infuse, you typically have to harvest over a longer period, gather them up, and then infuse them in oil.
0: Oh. Is the mullen is that with the tall yellow flower?
1: Yes, that's the one. It has a rosette of leaves, and then the second year, it shoots up the tall yellow flower spikes.
0: Okay. Is that one of the ones that you use the most? The
1: plantain is used the most and the purslane and the edible weeds I do tend to use the most. And then the medicinal ones, I just like to keep a stash. And thankfully, we're pretty healthy most of the time.
2: So Mm -hmm. we
1: use more of the stuff that we can eat because that's a daily tonic type of thing.
0: Speaking of edibles, what are some of your favorite vegetables that you like to grow?
1: Tomatoes, the ubiquitous tomatoes. Everybody loves tomatoes, although it's a whole fruit, vegetable thing. But yes. I have probably, I think we have over 50 tomato plants in the garden this year. Oh my gosh. Not because I would normally plant this many, but because I started tomato seeds and then they all grew and uh, I wasn't able to find homes for all of them. They so were we trapped.
2: Up, yeah, well, I didn't
1: want to throw them out. You no. know, they're, they're, they're my babies. Yeah. So we ended up killing up some extra land and, and just throwing them into the rough sod and everything's growing. There's tomatoes from one end of the place to the other. But my youngest can sit down and eat an entire pint of salsa on his own. So oh my if, if they grow, we will we will definitely use them. Tomatoes are a huge hit. Love homegrown carrots, too. They're so sweet and so delicious. And the colors are fun because, of course, you go to the store and you look for carrots. Well, they're almost always orange. And yep. sometimes we'll have the rainbow ones. But here, you know, I've got orange, red, white, yellow, and they're so pretty and they're so tasty. And home green beans, too, are just amazingly delicious compared to the store variety. I know we were at a wedding once several years back. It was at a golf course, and it was when my boys were quite a bit younger. And we were served an entree, and there was mashed potatoes on the side and green beans. And they were served, uh, everything was served. Everybody got the plates at the table. and, And the boys liked green beans. Generally speaking, but they took a bite of the green beans. My youngest took a bite. He, he starts chewing. He said, These green beans aren't very good. He said, They should take out some of this grass and put it in the garden instead so they could grow good green beans like oh. we have at home.
0: Oh, oh, oh. Love it. He's
1: <laughs> like,
0: oh, it's a golf course, honey.
1: that. They're
2: not, gonna yeah. do that. <laughs> no, they're not going to do that.
1: <laughs> oh. oh, I love so those that. Are, those are some of our favorites, I think. Wow. Somehow, you know, everything you grow with your own hands just tastes that much better, right? Absolutely. No
0: question. So what do you like to do with your garden harvest? I mean, you've talked a lot about, you know, getting in the kitchen. Are there some go-to recipes that you have that you know are on your website that people could check out if they want to start cooking a little bit more? There's some things that you think are just a really foolproof recipe for using the garden harvest?
1: My go-to staples tend to be pretty boring because... When I bring in stuff in the garden, a lot of the time I just don't want to fuss, you know, saute it in a little bit of butter, salt, and pepper and, and let it speak for itself. Although, once we've been eating something and a lot of something for a while longer, then I start experimenting a little bit more. But, of course, the first stuff, it's a lot of times just eaten raw or just very simply sauteed and boom on the table. Yeah. So, the flavors, I think when the produce flavors are that good, you don't need a lot to make it good. You know, if you're starting with the best quality ingredients, just letting the ingredients do their thing is is enough often. But I do have more food preservation type recipes on the site because, of course, we can't eat everything in season and we do have a lot of months of the year when the garden is not doing a whole lot other than sitting there shivering. So that's (laughs) the kind of recipes I have more of on my site and there's how to can a variety of things and Fruits, vegetables, that type of thing. Uh, There is one really easy to follow pickle recipe. If people want to try their hand at the simplest form of food preservation, there's just a very simple brine pickle recipe where all you do is you load your cucumbers into a gallon jar and you pour the brine over it. You let it sit on the counter for a few days, and then you stick it in the fridge, and that's it. And you've got dill pickles. So that's the kind of thing. It's like if you're a beginner, and even if you're not, and you're just in a hurry and want something good and quick, that's a good one to start out with.
0: Well, that's a great tip for people. And they can feel a sense of accomplishment even with something as simple as that.
1: Oh Yeah, and it's nice when everything's coming in all at once to maybe I will do some dill pickles that I can like my mom used to can where they're going to go into longer storage but that's a quick and done type of thing in one afternoon and hardly any time on the stovetop because all you have to do is heat up the brine and dump it in so that goes really fast and then you've got pickles and they're homemade and they've got a really nice crunch because they weren't heat processed at all and then as I mentioned earlier the boys and I are going to be mulberry picking soon. So there will have to be some mulberry recipes on the website.
0: (laughs) I'm going to keep, I'm going to look for those. That'll be a great little addition.
1: I've tasted mulberries before, but I've never had enough really to cook with. So I'm looking forward to that.
0: Well, you're ahead of me. I have never tasted them. Are they like a blueberry?
1: They're more like a blackberry, but a little less seedy. Okay. So, So if people don't like those crunchy blackberry seeds, the mulberries might be a better option.
0: Are they very big?
1: I'm not sure of the ones that we're picking because I've never met this person before in my life. This is what (laughs) happens when you talk to a friend of a friend and come on over. So my neighbors are about the size of a pinky to the first joint. Okay. So they're a pretty good size berry, but I'm not sure. They do have a range of sizes. Some of them I've seen at the strawberry patches that we go to. They have a nature walk and they have more wildlife mulberries and those are more like pea size similar to that size. And I do know that some of the modern types, there's like an Illinois mulberry, those will get more the size down to the second joint of your little finger. So those are a big berry. I'm not quite sure what I want to walk into, but it should be interesting.
0: I don't think I've seen any mulberry for sale in any of the nurseries up here.
1: They're not real popular. A lot of people Don't care for them necessarily because, of course, it's a small berry on a big tree. So if you're going to grow a fruit tree, I think a lot of people tend to gravitate towards apples, pears, cherries, something that they're more familiar with. And mulberries, a lot of times, will ripen over a longer time period. Like our neighbors, it has berries ripening all summer long. So they don't necessarily get enough for a big harvest at once, but they just enjoy fresh eating which is why I haven't gotten a ton of mulberries from their tree because they tend to trickle in. So, But I know some of the new cultivars that they're working with, you tend to have a narrower harvest window so that if you're interested in preserving things like that, you can get that bigger harvest. Maybe over time the new cultivars will be more available, but they're still kind of a novelty item right now.
0: As you're picking, you can be singing, here we go around the mulberry bush, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I have to teach that one to my boys. I doubt that they've ever heard it. You know, it's showing my age
0: and my age too, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you regard as your central strength as a gardener, Lori?
1: Perseverance, probably, because I have probably made every mistake that there is to be made, and I I fully admit to this, and I often share them on the website. Like, yeah, don't don't do this. This I like think I learned this the hard way. And of course, optimism. I think that's one of the most important traits for any gardener to have. It's like, okay, I screwed this up or okay, we got a bad storm and we got hail and it destroyed my garden. But there's always next year and there's always trying new things and creativity is another thing too. Well, just because my mom did it this way. My mom had the traditional garden. Everything was in rows and okay. then a big space between them and then you run the tiller up and down the rows. Well, I don't do that anymore. I have odd shaped beds and Almost everything gets mulched and the pathways are fairly narrow in a lot of cases. And I tend to plant in banks of plants or like a super wide row or a bed versus just a row. And, you know, once the tiller may come out in spring, it might not. And then it doesn't come out for the rest of the season. There's no need for it because everything is either mulched or covered in vegetation. So just, yeah, I guess keeping with it and don't give up by I- it. I enjoy it, and I think that's an important thing for people to do, too. The garden should be alive, and you should be a part of it. It shouldn't just be one more thing on the chore list.
0: Yeah. Well, it is an awful lot of work, but you have to enjoy it, otherwise you won't keep it up.
1: Yeah, it's the not fun work versus the, the good time work.
0: That's right. What's currently inspiring you in the garden?
1: Well, big project is we're trying to rehab... My center, I have this garden shaped like a wagon wheel. That is my view when I looked out my kitchen window and actually all all my south windows because the, the bulk of the passive solar windows face south. We are rehabbing the garden bed and it's going to once again have a nice mix of pretty flowers as opposed to just being overgrown with a couple of echinacea and oregano, which survived the quackgrass onslaught. And <laughs> so so that that'll be nice. Be, I'm looking very much forward to having that being pretty and attractive and eye candy again as opposed to just, oh, that's the part of the garden that I need to attend to. So, And we've gotten really far along with everything else in the garden. It's just nice to look out and see everything green and growing and just getting ready to produce a harvest. It's the happy time of year. Before it gets too crazy because all the harvest is coming in and where the big work is done, with the planting and the mulching and the trellising. And it it's just, it's the nice time.
0: Yeah, it's- it really is. Now, what would you recommend as a plant list for folks in small spaces? Are there things that you think, you know, if you didn't have the amount of space that you had or that you currently have, that if you were, let's say, downsizing to a small suburban yard, that you would say, okay, these are things I would bring with me and I would, grow vertically or I would grow in a container, something that you would want to continue to grow even though you're in a small space?
1: I'd probably say avoid the pumpkins and the corn because those <laughs> are horrible space hogs. Yeah. And then beyond that, I'd say what if people really like? I mean, if you have a favorite vegetable, that's the one that I would make space for mm-hmm. because that's the one you're going to take care of, that's the one you're going to enjoy the most. So I think I would always have Well, I can think about it, because when we were building this house, we ended up for a year without a garden, and I had probably 10-foot by 6-foot space on the south side of my husband's great-uncle's house, and we put in some beans, and we put in a few tomatoes, and we put in a few peppers, and that was our garden for that year. Okay. Okay. So those tend to be pretty forgiving and can be easily trellised up, too. Not the peppers, but they, they form a nice bush shape, generally, so they don't get too space-hungry. Yeah. But the beans, I grow pole beans. And the tomatoes, you can grow up on a trellis, so you can squeeze those puppies in there. Without a
0: whole lot of fuss. Yep. Yep. That's perfect. What percentage of your life is given over to your homesteading online content, your blog? I know homesteading is obviously your daily life, but you've got this blog. You've got all the resources that you try to put together for people. You are taking own pictures, I'm assuming. It's both a passion for you, but it's also, you know, part job. Is your online work life giving to you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> it, it, it's just a strange balance because some days it's really awesome. And I talk to people and we're sharing the same interests and I help somebody out. That's really awesome stuff. The not so nice stuff is when you get people leaving snippy, snippy comments. I assume they just had a bad day and need to take it out on somebody most of the time. But I did start the blog initially. I didn't even dream of making any money off of it or using it to help our our family out. I said, my friends are doing it. Your friends are doing it. So just, why don't you do it? And then we were going through some things. My husband lost his job. And so I was sharing more of our daily life type stuff. It was more the kind of older weblog type of thing. It was more day-to-day things. And then the site evolved and eventually became what it is today, where it is more of an informational resource with just snippets of our daily life. And I know it's just an odd mix some days will be. I basically will dedicate the whole day to doing something, writing, or prepping recipes, taking photos, and it can take a lot out of just a lot of energy to do that. And then other days, I have to walk away from it and do the stuff offline to recharge and and get those energy levels back up. So I think it's kind of a teeter totter act for me. I don't know. It has gotten to the point where there's just a lot of work involved to make it happen, and yeah. Some parts are still really great, and some parts are like, oh, no, no, that's not fun. So I'm trying to work to get more of the first part and less of the not-so-fun part. That's one of my goals for this year.
0: Well, I loved hearing that you go back to the garden, too, or you go back to your daily life to get the energy going and the creativity flowing again, because that's really where it all starts.
1: Yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, online, with all the turmoil in the world, I think it's just getting to people and there's a lot of not nice coming out on the internet so yeah. that i think affects us as bloggers and communicators and just uh, sometimes we caught get caught in the crossfire even though it's not directly involving us
2: well
0: and i always think of gardening as such a neutral safe topic and it really is fascinating to see how passionate people can get about certain practices or or even you know just a simple post about you know, how to how to grow or not grow a certain plant. It's it's pretty yeah. interesting. I've
1: always done it this way, and it worked yeah. great for me. I'm like, <laughs> I never do it that way. And, oh, it's, just, uh, it's, it's okay, people. It's all yeah.
0: good. Yeah, it's just plants. It's just plants. Uh, well, in terms of connections, what bloggers or experts do you admire and follow online?
1: Oh, I do not have nearly enough time to go and dark people, <laughs> 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 and check out everything they're doing. Every day, it seems lately, it's just kind of a mad rush. I do have a group of ladies that we collaborate in an online Facebook group, so I tend to follow a lot of their blogs more closely than some of the other ones. There's, the, I don't know if you've heard of the Homestead Bloggers Network, too. No. Um, there's a lot of good... Oh, God, now I'm really surprised because there's a Homestead Bloggers Network, and it, it's all Homestead blogs, and there's a, a range of blog sizes and interests and different facets of homesteading, so and there's a, a lot of nice people in there that I've connected with over the years, but my other group ladies, I don't know if I'm allowed to reveal this on the air or not, what the, what the name of the group is, but it's a super awesome homesteading group.
0: We'll <laughs> <laughs> just call it the Super Awesome Homesteading
1: Group. I yeah. love it. And so, we all cover different aspects of homesteading. Some folks are more into the wildcrafting type of things and herbalism, and some folks are more animal, chicken-focused, and other small backyard animals. I don't think we have... No, no, one of the ladies does have cows. Let me think. At least one. I think a couple might. And then there's one that's more focused on sustainable living. And so, yeah, I, I, I got to say that I don't have any one because my interest tend to go all over the place. It's like Today it's I'm over here, it's then tomorrow I'm over here, so boom, 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 boom. And my friend Amber at the Coastal Homestead has been a big help to me these last couple of years. She started doing some different guest polls for me, helped picking up the slack a little bit, give me a little bit more outside time. And her blog is a little bit newer. She's just getting started, but she lives in a completely different environment. She's in South Carolina. Oh, my So. And she's got sandy soil, and she's not too far from the ocean, so she deals with the heat and humidity, the likes of which I have never seen, and she's only got a quarter acre. It's a true backyard homestead. Wow. And what, what she crams into that amount of space to me is just amazing because she's got bees, she's got goats, she's got chickens all in a quarter acre and the garden. I'm like, where do you put it all?
0: Wow. That's awesome. I bet so, she, yeah,
1: you know, there's, there's always more. With the Internet, you can always find something else to learn, something else to do, something else to try. It's, it's an amazing resource.
0: Well, the connections, are, I think, are one of the hidden benefits of being active online um, in any community because you really do make uh, friends and get to share resources with people that you would have never, ever, ever met you know, even 20 years ago, 10 years ago, before all of this online activity got started.
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, I never gave it any thought, a lot of these things. I mean, our garden season up north here tends to follow a pretty similar structure between Wisconsin and Minnesota. You know, we have our planting in the springtime, our summer growth, and our fall harvest, summer into fall harvest. But down south, folks are heading into Fall and winter, and they're just gearing up for their gardening season because there's a lot of stuff they can't grow in the middle of summer because it just gets too hot.
2: Yes, everything
1: burns out. So it's expanding my reality. I, I think that's a very good thing, and just I've learned so much, and I, I hope that I've been able to share and and help other people learn too. And it's just this community exists that you know my mom never had access to when she was my age, and it, it's just. It's fascinating, sometimes a little scary, but overall a great resource.
0: You are pretty active on social media. I've seen your Facebook page. I've seen some of your posts on Twitter. But is Facebook your most active social media site?
1: Probably just because, uh, you know, they have such a massive user base. Although I have been posting a lot more things on Instagram because that can just be fun, you know, just post a pretty picture. Oh, this is what we're up to today. This is what's grown in the garden. No, here's the latest batch of wine. <laughs> you know, here's the silly kitty. And it just Instagram is just more fun, simple, feel good, at least for me, although I know people are, you know, marketing the Instagram this, that, and there are apps for that, and it's like, no, no, I'm not going there yet, but Facebook, of course, is Facebook, and sometimes it doesn't always play nice, but when it lets you reach people and something takes off, it is I think, still one of the better ways to engage followers.
0: Absolutely. And do you do a lot of sharing of other people's posts as well, or is it primarily your content?
1: I do a lot of sharing other people's posts. No one person can know everything. And like the ladies that I tend to hang out with, the, the super awesome ladies, right? So <laughs> super awesome <laughs> ladies. have a lot of super awesome content. So <laughs> if folks or watch my feed on Facebook, they will likely be seeing a lot from these ladies because they are some of my regular go-to folks because I know I can always trust their content to be reliable and good quality.
0: Yeah, So. well, that's true. Well, and you just posted something I thought was really neat it was on um, Marshmallow, the herb.
1: Yeah, that's from my friend Chris over at Joyfully Farm. She's up in Canada, too, and she's been battling cold temps to the point of almost frosty, which, you know, in July here still, I'm thinking, ah. Oh, That's terrible, but yet still, she manages to have a very abundant garden, and she has animals, and and she is definitely an herb maven, and has so much good information on her site about different herb uses, and, you know, I think most people, probably more people than not, do not realize that marshmallow was, is actually a flower, you know, there's a marshmallow, as opposed to marshmallows.
0: Yes, well, and it's got a pretty flower, too. Mm Mm-hmm. You have many, many great skills, and one of them that has intimidated me forever is bread-making. And I know you have a new book coming out later this year about bread-making. Can you give me a preview of it, and can you talk a little bit about how do you get someone like me who's a little afraid of it to get started in it?
1: Well, hopefully this book will help with that, because I had, my husband was one of my proofreaders, and he said, you should explain this, you should explain that. It starts out with a troubleshooting guide and we try to go through and nail all the typical questions that new bakers have when they get in the kitchen about what type of flour you use, temperatures that things are at, all the different equipment, everything, and just basically put even how how many pans can I fit in the oven, where in the oven should it go, things like this, that once you've done it, it's second nature, but when you're new to baking, it can be a little bit intimidating because I grew up as my mom, a shadow, and we baked, and we baked, and we baked some more. I'm the youngest out of six kids, so mm-hmm. there was always a lot of baking for just feeding the family, and then we had a catering business that we started when I was 15 and a half with my mom and my two sisters, and that was my summer job through most of high school and college, and we used to make all of our... Baked goods from scratch: pies, cakes, buns, and breads. And I have rolled thousands upon thousands of little white dinner rolls over the years. <laughs>
2: wow!
1: <laughs> so that's that's what people like. You know, it's like, okay, you have your chicken dinner, you get your little dinner rolls with it. Well, most people just get those at the bakery. Oh, no, we made them all from scratch. So the bread baking book will feature some of the recipes I have on the site, plus some additional ones. There are over 25 different recipes. Some of them are more traditional, standard breads, sourdough, things like that. There are some gluten-free ones. There are some different holiday breads. And as I mentioned, it starts with a troubleshooting guide and just basic Q&A to introduce new bakers. So, And the instructions are pretty detailed, so it should make pretty much everyone comfortable with attempting bread. And I know I've gotten some reviews on some of the different recipes that people say, okay, I tried somebody else's recipe, and I screwed that up, and I tried yours, and it saved the day. Oh, really? And, like, that was on the cornbread recipe because they had tried something off of allrecipes.com or one of those other main recipe sites, and she's like, I baked a brick. So I quick dumped that out and composted, it, and I whipped up yours in a hurry, and it was delicious. Now everybody raves about my cornbread. Well, that's great. And uh, there's a couple different sandwich breads that we use regularly. And people say, you know, this has become my go to recipe. I never baked a decent loaf of bread before, but this one works every time. So the recipes that I shared in there are ones that we use on a regular basis that have, you know, my kids can make them. And, and, you know, a 15 year old boy can make it. Most people should be able to manage it.
0: Okay. All right. So do you have, do you use a bread machine, Lori?
1: A lot of the time I do. I don't okay. always. I have mixed them by hand. There's one recipe in the book that you really need to mix by hand if you're going to do it because it's a traditional Swedish bread that's typically a holiday bread and it just the batch it makes it so huge. Mm-hmm. that you you need a very large bowl and you got to mix it by hand or you would need an industrial mixer, one of the two.
2: So, okay.
1: But I mix up, and actually I shouldn't say it's a bread machine, I just have a heavy-duty mixer. So I mix it in the mixer and then shape it into loaves or buns or whatever, however we want to bake it. Oh. just saves time in the kitchen. You know, I can be working on something else while the bread is mixing and just keep a check on it because typically I'll cycle. I'll do a little mix at the beginning, like six to eight minutes to make sure that the dough is thoroughly blended, and then let it rest a little bit and punch it down, and then let it do a second rise, and then I'll shape the dough and let it rise again in the pan. And that's one of the secrets to successful bread baking, in my experience, is making sure that you give your dough enough time to rise and letting it rise more than once. And that helps produce that lighter texture that most people tend to prefer. Without And I still use whole wheat flour and still get that lighter texture.
0: Was your mom's side a Swedish then? Is that where all of this fabulous baking came from?
1: You know, actually, the Swedish recipe came from one of my readers that I had been passed on through her family. My mom's background, she was, <laughs> now I'm drawing a blank, she was Bohemian. Oh,
2: really? But her
1: mom was a big baker, and then my grandmother was a big baker too. She used to be a cook at, a local retirement community, grandma did, and then mom, of course, we had the catering business, but she, her first job when she was, I think, in eighth grade, her first job away from home was going over to do the baking at a neighbor's because there was a neighbor who was bedridden with one of her pregnancies and she had a big family. And back then, all the ladies of the house did their baking once a week and their traditional Czech baked goods, well, mom's mom was Czech, yeah, so bohemian Czech. And mom went over, and she had to make their kolache and rolaki. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're on the website. Okay. And kolache, at least the way my mom did them, are little round things. They look kind of like buns, except for they're pressed in the center and flattened out, and then they're filled with the fruit filling. And then rolaki are little crescent rolls, and mom was hired to do their baking. Well, the first time she went over, she was nervous because she was a young girl. She was only eighth grade age. And she did the baking, and everything looked good. And then the husband came home and he went to test the baked goods. He took a kolachi, took a bite, and he gets a questioning look on his face. And he grabs a salt shaker and he sprinkles a little salt on the top of the kolachi. And then he he finishes eating it. (laughs) So she realized that she had forgotten the salt in the dough. (laughs) So all of them were screwed up. But they still looked good. They were just a little bland. And so that, uh, she was pretty embarrassed because, of course, she wanted to make a good first impression. But they, they they ate it all anyway. They had a house full of kids. And so, you know, next time, remember the salt. It's all good. Oh,
0: wow. What a great story. So
1: she started when she was quite young. And I baked at home and then baked at the catering business. And a lot of time in the kitchen over the years.
0: Absolutely. Well, Lori, I have so enjoyed our time together. And you have, uh, for people who are interested in exploring your website, if they go to your website and subscribe, they get your guide to homesteading, right? There's a basic guide that's available for them.
1: Yeah, there's a free ebook for subscribers. It's Common Sense Homesteading 101 Seven Steps to Become More Self Reliant Now. And that has a project list at the back with different ideas which are featured on the site, you know, simple things that they can do in their home to become more self-reliant. And then it's got the seven steps is just walking people through different facets of their life and just giving people ideas of where to start because a lot of times that's the toughest thing. It's like, I'm overwhelmed. I'm already doing too much. I can't possibly make time for something more. Well, don't have to do it all. Pick something, and here's a good place to start.
0: Yeah. Well, and your website is a tremendous resource, so I really encourage people to go that direction as well. Just explore all the great content that you have out there. So Thank you. And thank you for being on the show, Lori. I've really enjoyed our time together, and I've learned quite a bit. I appreciate that. Yes. Well, have a great time mulberry picking, Lori.
1: Have a good rest of the afternoon, and thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. Thanks for being on the show. Yep. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Lori Neverman, my homesteading expert, for being my guest. And I also want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, Ein Kadina, and David Gregerson. I could not get the show out without these guys. Literally, they just saved my bacon every single week. And also my production assistant, Taylor Davey. Just a reminder that I'll have all of the information from today's show on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number 6 M A M A. There are a lot of tabs there. You can look up the show. All the shows are posted there, all the show notes, all the resources and contact information. There's also a link to the Facebook group there now. So if you want to just go to the website, that's an easy, quick way to quickly get to the Facebook group. And again, once you get there, all you have to do is ask to join and I'll admit you to the group. I really do hope that you join the Facebook group. It's a great place to ask questions, share your own garden stories, interact with the great guests that are featured on Still Growing, and also connect with other listeners of the show. And don't forget, it's also where I post all of the really awesome garden giveaways for my guests and sponsors, for my lucky listeners. And this week, we're gonna give away a cookbook. It's one of Deborah Madison's cookbooks. So make sure that you join that group this week so that you can be eligible to win. Go ahead, check it out. I'd love to meet you in the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. Have a great week, everybody. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebeling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.